Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your servant, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Messiah, who wrapped up the Old Testament prophecies and point us all to the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that in him there is forgiveness of sins. So let us join John in repenting as we prepare for the coming of the Christ. May our lives be lives of repentance trusting in you for forgiveness and seeking to change our sinful lives that they might reflect your glory and be according to your will in service to you and our neighbor. Now, Lord, as you have given us this time to study your word, we ask you to be in our midst by your spirit that as we read the words of the Gospel of John, the spirit might lead us into all truth, that when we see our Savior lifted up on the cross, we may know that he is truly our Messiah. Bless us now in Jesus' name. (coughs) Amen. Okay, so um, here we are in the Gospel of John. If you open your Bible to the New Testament, right, the New Testament is the last third of the Bible. Yes, it's really weird, but the Old Testament is about two-thirds of your Bible. The New Testament is only the last third or so, and the New Testament starts with four books that are all called Gospels. Okay? They are Gospels. Now, Gospel is not really a genre of literature other than these four books. Okay, There are no other Gospels on the face of the earth. Other books that have the label Gospel or other writings that have the label Gospel are only done in imitation of these four. Right? So you'll like hear on the History Channel that they discovered a new Gospel. Uh, no. There are four Gospels and that's that. Okay, the other things were done um, in imitation of these four and are awful intimate are awful copies and actually not even the same idea of these four gospels. So there are only four gospels on the face of the earth, and they are Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, Luke, and John. Now, we gave four authors a good fair shot at it. Three did fairly well. And one really, really well, right? That's John. Okay, so the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. You might hear about this. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And remember, this word kind of um, sin is with or together. And optic, what's, what's your optic nerve? Your seeing, it's your seeing thing. So they, they look alike or they have the same point of view. They kind of read alike. That kind of thing is what that means. Um, so these three Gospels are known as an optic Gospel. We're not going to read them. We're going to read John. John is unique from these three. Um, and yet it's one of the four Gospels. Okay? So, does that make sense? We've gone over that before, you guys. That's not new. That's review. Um, any questions on that? So the author, if you look at your sheet, we just have a bunch of, bunch of information here. And there's no really way to go through it other than just read it. So the author of John is John. Right? This isn't hard. They, they made it real easy for us in the Gospels. They just put the author's name on the top of the book. So who wrote Matthew. Matthew, yes, Sam. We know him as Matthew. Who wrote Mark? Peter, Peter, right. Mark, who wrote Luke? Luke, who wrote John? John. That's easy. Now, the problem is there are lots of Johns running around. Right, there's one right here. It's actually the most popular name in the world. Um, So, John, in this case, the author of the Gospel of John is John, one of the twelve the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Okay? So when you think of the three guys that went to the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Right? Yeah? You heard that story? That's the John we're talking about that wrote the gospel. Not the John from our readings this morning in church. Not John the baptizing John. Right? That's not the same John. Okay? So, the two major Johns you've got in the New Testament are John the Baptist. He isn't a Baptist, though. 
right? He isn't actually Baptist. He's a baptizer. So John the baptizing John is one John, and they have John the Apostle John, who's the other John, and that's the author of this gospel, is the Apostle. Okay? Now, John, the author of the gospel John, the son of Zebedee, one of the three chief disciples of Jesus, is the only of the twelve disciples that was not martyred. Okay? The rest of the twelve were martyred for their faith. John was not. Not for lack of trying, but he didn't die of martyrdom. So he wasn't killed in persecution for his faith. He died of... This doesn't happen anymore, but back when I was a kid, people died of natural causes. That doesn't happen anymore, but back in the day, that happened. So he just kind of lived on until he no longer lived. He died of natural causes. So he was, his life wasn't taken from him like by the Romans or something like that, like the rest of the apostles. Okay? Now, he's also the last of the apostles to live. So he, lives, he outlives them all um, by a long time, actually. So much so that it became legend in the early church that he would never die. That John would just live forever until Christ returns. Okay? And that's actually addressed at the end of the gospel. Um, that's not true. He does die. There aren't, well, there, I'm sure there are legends, but they're not true, that John's still alive somewhere, you know. He and Elvis are still alive. Um, but he does die, um, and, and we know he lives into the beginning of the second century, okay? So that means he lives past 100 AD, which is really, really old. So if you think that he's probably a teenager or 20 years old during the ministry of Jesus, that makes him around 90 years old or so at 100 AD. So he lives probably into his 90s, which at a time when the you know, average male lived to be 60 or something, that's pretty good. So he's old. Um, and he actually becomes named several different things by the early church fathers. Okay? Now, the, the book itself, there are several theories on how it was written and when it was written. I'm going to present to you one theory um, that obviously is my favorite. There is another theory that I also like, but it's hard to explain. Um, the, the easiest way to look at the Gospel of John is that it's the Gospel of John is one of five books in the New Testament that are written by John. Okay, and this is this is important because who was the first writer of scripture? Moses. How many books did he write? Five. Who was the last writer of scripture? John. How many books did he write? Five. Kind of fun. Okay? Now, five books of John are in order. He wrote Revelation, and then he wrote first, second, and third John. And then he wrote the Gospel of John. Okay? So what happens is, this is written around, nine, did I say 96? Yeah. The years are all within a year or two. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the only reason years matter is because of Roman emperors at the time. Okay? So John is in prison in Patmos, and he writes the book of Revelation while he's in prison in Patmos. Now, it seems from history that he was released from that prison somewhere between 96 and 97 because there was a change of Roman emperors and with that change all the captives were set free just because the emperor was being nice. Okay? So, he's set free. He writes the book of Revelation while he's on Patmos and it's, you know, you've read Revelation, right? It's that crazy book at the end of the Bible. Um, and then when he gets back to his church in Ephesus, while he's been gone, some false teachers have crept into his church and he writes 1 John as an epistle to correct the errors that have been going on in his church and to explain what's going on theologically. Okay? So he's going to make the rounds and, and go preach at all these churches, but first he's going to write a letter to them. That's 1 John. He writes a cover letter to go with that letter, and that's 2 John, okay, which is actually a cover letter for 1 John to explain what this is. And then 
along with those two documents, he writes a third letter called Third John, which is to one of the specific congregations in the area that he preaches to because they had a specific issue. Okay, so that's the best way to look at the epistles is that First John is a letter he wrote to all the churches that he was responsible for. He wrote Second John as a cover letter to go with it to explain what was going on. And Third John is a letter to one of those churches because they're having a certain problem with a couple of different people. Okay? And that's the way we, that's the easiest way to look at these. And that all happens in 96 to 97 because he's been in prison. He's going to come back and all these errors have crept into the church while he was gone. He's going to fix the errors. Okay? Then, after that, um, he's getting old and so they beg him to write down his what he's been preaching as far as his gospel goes, the way that he talks about Jesus. And so he writes down as, as, as his last will and testament or as the last writings of the church, what we have as the gospel of John. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that kind of... Whatever. I don't know if it makes sense or not. That's, that's kind of the best historical re- reproduction we have of this situation. Um, this is what the church fathers reflect. That's where most of this information comes from, is from church fathers. Um, just a quick word. Yeah, we have lots of time. Have you guys ever heard of the church fathers? You ever heard that term? Apostolic fathers? Okay. Well, when they talk about like the early church, you ever heard of early church? What that usually means is the church before... 313 AD, basically. Okay, so in 313 AD, what happened? Constantine said, Christianity is the legal religion of the Roman Empire. Okay, that changed everything, right? That's when we started having tables for Bible class. Before then, we stood. Um, That's when we started dressing in goofy clothes with robes. We had donuts were instituted. That's right. All that kind of stuff. Before that, what is called the early church, when the church was not an official religion of the Roman Empire, was persecuted more. But also it's when um, people started writing theology and what they would do is they would interpret the New Testament. Quite really all of scripture. And those church fathers are guys like Irenaeus. You might have heard of him. Origen. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias. They had good names, didn't they? Yeah, they all had cool names. Well, these guys wrote explaining the New Testament, and these guys are the ones who, who kind of help us with these kinds of reconstructions when we talk about when things were written and who wrote them. Okay, so it's in the church fathers we learn that Mark is really the written preaching of the apostle Peter. <coughs> Okay. And all the church fathers say that John was written as the last of the Gospels. Okay, So the other Gospels were probably written between 45, well, really probably after 49, but some could be as early as 45. Matthew could be in the 40s. I think it's really, if you want to be real safe in your dating, you think after 49 and before 66. Those are when the other Gospels are written. Okay? Um, Probably you want to go a little earlier than 66 and say between 49 and 60. We have the written first three Gospels. Okay? And then if John comes along and writes in the mid to late 90s, you have a full 35 to 40 years between the writing of those Gospels and the writing of John, which allows John and his church to have been reading those Gospels. Okay? The other way to look at it is that this is written really early and put it in the 40s or 50s, which there's, there's not much evidence for that in the early church. So that's why we don't usually do that. But it doesn't really matter. It's old. Okay? So the cool thing is the oldest manuscript of the New Testament that we possess is from the Gospel of John. And it can be dated reliably to 125 A.D. Okay? 125 A.D. It's the earliest manuscript of the New Testament we have, 
and it's from John, and it's a couple of verses in John 18. It's about this big. Where is it? It's in the John Rylands Museum in... I always forget where it is. Where is that? I don't remember. You could look it up. It's called P- P52. And you can go see it? You can go see it, yeah. You can go see it. It's in glass. It's only this big. Hmm. It's just, it has two verses on this side, and you flip it over, and there's two verses on that side. It's just a scrap of paper. Well, not paper, the virus. Um, so it's from 125 AD, which is amazing because that means it's like less than 30 years after the gospel was written, we have a copy of it. Now, just put this in perspective. When you're talking like Homer, the closest manuscript we have of Homer from Homer himself is hundreds of years. Hundreds. Right? Hundreds and hundreds. Um, this one is within it within a generation. So, Gospel of John, very early attestation. Um, the text of the Gospel of John is very clean as far as questions go. There are a couple of verses, but most of the text is very clean. Um, not a whole lot of problems with it. Okay? Now, according to the church fathers, John wrote this gospel in the city of Ephesus, where he was a pastor for 30 or so years. Um, so John was the pastor of the region of Ephesus, which, yes, you know from the book of Ephesians, it's that area. So Paul went there as well. But it seems like John kind of became the pastor of the region of Ephesus and did his work there um, and wrote this book there. Now, the gospel itself, um, this is one of the famous quotes about the gospel. It also then applied to scripture, but mostly to the gospel of John. It is shallow enough for a child to wade and deep enough for an elephant to drown. That's very true about the gospel of John. This is the gospel that most people give to unbelievers to give them a taste of who Jesus really is. It has, it has a lot of memory verses in it. John 3.16 is found in John, oddly enough. Right? Um, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you, right? But my peace I give to you, John. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John. In my Father's house are many rooms, John. I am the light of the world, John. The woman at the well, John. So all these stories, uh, Nicodemus, it's in the Gospel of John. Okay, so... There are a lot of stories that you know. There are a lot of verses you know from this gospel. Um, so it's, it's a very easy to read gospel. It's written very simply in many ways. It's written to be read and heard out loud. Um, if you want a real treat, listen to the gospel of John read sometime by someone with a nice voice. Um, it's very, very easy to listen to. And one of the reasons is because it's written in circles. You will, re- you will hear things repeated so you won't forget them. Okay? Does that make sense? So one of the features of the Gospel of John is called circle composing. And if you, if you skip down in your sheet to the structure, the structure itself is actually called circle composing. Um, circle composing is the idea that what you have here will be repeated again here. That's all it is. It means the beginning and the end will go back and forth. So what you start with, you will end with. And the end will point back to the beginning and the beginning will point ahead to the end and the stuff in the middle will have to fill in the gaps. Okay, this was actually a technique of how to write. And so if you look at structure, it's, it's actually structured this way is that the prologue is offset by an epilogue. So the prologue is the first 18 verses and the epilogue is the last chapter. So you have a beginning and an end. And they they kind of go like this. And then in the middle, you have two sections. Um, and this will happen throughout the gospel. We will have circles. Anyway, we'll get there as we, as we get there. But the big thing in the Gospel of John that you've probably heard of and that, and that uh, people talk about a lot is there are, there are seven signs recorded in the Gospel of John and seven I am statements. So these seven signs are seven miracles that Jesus does in the Gospel. And they're the only miracles. But the fact that there are seven of them is significant. Okay, remember seven is a sign of completeness or even a sign of divinity. And so seven miracles, I have listed them there for you. There are also seven times when Jesus says, I am 
something. Okay, so there's seven of those. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Okay, those are seven times that Jesus says, I am, followed by a statement. Now, maybe even more importantly, there are three times when Jesus says, I am, without something following it. Okay? 858, there's a couple of places in 8 before it, but it lead up to 858. And in 185, and there's some after that, but they kind of point back to that one. So 858 and 18.5, but also, and I want you to turn to this one, in 13.19, okay? Chapter 13, verse 19. I want you to look at that just for a second with me. So I don't know why I didn't write that one down. It should be in there. That's my mistake. But 13.19. John 13, verse 19. This is after he's washed the disciples' feet. Um, in the upper room the night before he's betrayed. And he says, he's been talking to them about stuff, and he says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Now, your Bible says, I am he. The he is not there. It just says, I am. And the reason this is really important is because this refers back to Isaiah. Isaiah is actually the one that develops this I am as the identification of Yahweh. Okay? So in Isaiah, Yahweh is Ego, I mean, which is Greek for I am. Okay? So in Isaiah, Yahweh says, when these things take place, they will happen so that you may believe that I am. And that's exactly what Jesus says here to his disciples. So this is important. The whole point of the Gospel of John is that you might believe that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That sounds like a terrible mistranslation. It really um, is. Well, some translations do actually translate these as capital letters. But the uh, the ESC chose to translate it. Now, the thing is, these words in Greek actually just do mean I am, as in the verb to be. And isn't that the words that are used yes. here? Yeah, they are. So they put he on the end. Eh, kind of fill in the blank for you. Um, but but I think it's, it's a little misleading. I think it's actually better to understand this in light of Isaiah. Um, and we'll, when, we, when we do this first, we'll get there. But in Isaiah... This is the phrase in Isaiah that, that Yahweh uses, especially between 40 and 55, in order to identify himself as the God of Israel, as the unique God of God and Lord of Lords. He says, I am. Okay? And it's, it is not... Let's see. How would I say this? It is uniquely in Isaiah that we read these words as the identification of Yahweh. Okay? Yeah? Questions? Thoughts? Okay. We will get to the I am stuff when we get to the first I am statement. Then I'll talk, talk about like exit. So, so most of you in your Bibles, and actually they have a, they have a whole essay on this in the Lutheran Study Bible. Um, where is it? After, I think it's after chapter 3, which is a weird place because there isn't an I am statement there. Yeah, it's on, it's on page 1784 in your Lutheran Study Bible. The witness of I am. And, and don't tell anybody I said this, but they're wrong. They didn't call me. Whoever wrote this, um, they, they, it was a good try. It just isn't right. Um, so, 
here's what happens, and I, we're, we're not gonna get anywhere if we keep doing this, but, but this, what happens is, and this happens all the time in, in Bible interpretation, and I'm just gonna be honest with you about this, is that if you're reading just the English and not looking at the Greek and the Hebrew, you'll make weird mistakes like this. In Exodus 3.14, Moses goes to the burning bush and he's like, all right, so I'm going to go tell the Israelites that you sent me. Well, who should I say sent? And he goes, tell them I am sent you, right? And so they go, oh, Jesus said I am. And it says I am in Exodus. Therefore, this I am refers back to Exodus. Well, guess what? It's not a go of me in Exodus. When they, when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, they did not use this phrase to translate the I am in Exodus 3.14. Instead, they, uses, they used this phrase, ha-on. Okay? And what this is, is this is the phrase that means the one who is, which is actually the Hebrew in Exodus 3.14. And this is in John... <coughs> 118. Okay? That's where you actually get a quotation from there. So what happened is Isaiah is the one that interprets Exodus 3.14 into the words ego and me. Isaiah is the one that translates Exodus 3.14. It's actually 14 through 16. Um, and he is the one that takes the I am from Exodus 3 and turns it into this phrase. Okay, and we'll get there again when we do this. We'll get there on the why. Okay, there's a whole um, there's a whole theme in all of this of how Isaiah actually interprets the Torah. Remember how he did Genesis? You guys here for that? For like a couple years? Yeah. So Genesis leads to Exodus, and Exodus is the salvation event of the Old Testament. Remember that where God saves his people. So this becomes a big deal. So when Isaiah is prophesying and his people are going into exile, where does he go to say, don't worry, God will deliver you? What does he do? He goes back to Exodus. And if you read Isaiah, especially 40 to 55, you read a lot of language that reflects the Exodus. Right? You have... You guys ever heard of stuff from X, from Isaiah? Like, yeah, I'll make the the crooked places straight. Yeah, every valley, right? And you have all this language of I'm gonna make a highway in the wilderness. Wait, who is it that wandered in the wilderness and Yahweh was their guide? See, that's going back to the Exodus. He talks about making, making the dry places wet and the wet places dry. You have all this language of water and dryness, which is a reflection of the Exodus. You have all kinds of language in Isaiah that reflects the Exodus. And what happens is John, in his gospel, picks up Isaiah's interpretation of the Exodus and he uses that as a, as a theme through his gospel and he quotes us words where Jesus does the same thing. That's where these I am statements actually come from, is John pointing us back to Isaiah. Because remember, Isaiah's main theme in 40 through 55 is that Yahweh is the only God. There is no other God, only Yahweh. Right? That's Isaiah's theme. And so John is picking this up and he's saying, the only God is Jesus. And you say stuff like that, they kill you. Right? Well, they try to. All right, any questions so far? We're not going to get through any of this. Oh, well. All right, let's just skip all the rest. You can read that. Yes, Susan. Yeah. Uh, not being John the Baptist. Right. And John the Baptist not being the Baptist. Right. He's not a Baptist. John He's Lutheran. Poor proclaimer of Christ. Yep. Are there any preachings of John the Baptist in, in John? 
in the New Testament, yeah, the, all the Gospels begin with John. So we have, we have short snippets of his preaching. We read one today in, in church from Luke where he says, you know, like, don't, don't extort people if you're a soldier, that kind of stuff. We have just short little bits of his preaching. We don't have any long extended narratives. Um, in the Gospel of John, he's going to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Um, yeah, that's him saying that. That's John saying it. That's John the Baptist being quoted in the Gospel of John by saying, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, um, don't extort money if you're a soldier, that kind of stuff. That's all John the Baptist. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. That's John the Baptist. <coughs> he didn't write anything down. Nope, we only have it preserved in the Gospels. In the four Gospels of the New Testament. That's the only place we have it preserved. Okay? They cut his head off. It's hard to write. Yes. It's brutally hard to write after you don't have a head. Although some of the writing I've written. Yeah. Perhaps that's why. Okay? Other questions? The best way to read this book is to read it. So let's do that. Let's go to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Um, By the way, I really do mean this. Read the Gospel of John. Read it. Listen to it. However you got to do it, read it. It's it's a very good book to read. Um, You will find lots of things that you're familiar with. And it's just a good story. It ends well. Don't get scared in the middle. It ends well. Okay, let's read John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, thank you. So, here's the thing about the Gospel of John. He tells us why he wrote. So I'm not going to make anything up. That's why he wrote, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So, does John think this is the only scripture? No. No. He actually believes that he's writing this in the context of other writings. So Jesus did a bunch of other stuff, right? And in this writing as opposed to the other writings. I didn't write them all down. Okay? So John writes this book in the context of other scriptures. And again, this is where, if you could read it in Greek, it would be really nice because the the word they use here for other writings is actually the word that you use when you're going to quote the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? So John writes this book to be read in the context of the Old Testament. What you would call the Old Testament. What, what for him was just simply the Bible, right? It was his scriptures. So John writes this book so that you will read it in the context of God's word, which is the, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. I think he's also writing it to be read in the context of the other gospels and possibly some of Paul's letters. We'll get to that theory as we go. Okay, but I, I actually believe that John is writing this, presuming that his the the audience knows the Gospels and specifically the Gospel of Mark. Okay, and there's a lot of work on on why that's so. Okay, so number two, who wrote this book? John. But why does he? Why does he? Why do I ask that question now? We just went over all that. Why would I ask that question now? Look at the text. What does it say? What's the implication here? Yeah, but who who is this writer? If you didn't know all this stuff I just told you, who who would you say it is? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. This guy is claiming to be a disciple who saw what Jesus did. He's claiming to be an eyewitness 
of the things that he has recorded. So the author of the Gospel of John claims to have seen these things, not just heard them from somebody else. He claims to be a personal eyewitness. This is a big deal. This is a first-hand eyewitness account. And this is confirmed for us in the first epistle of John, in 1 John, where it says, that which we have seen and heard, which our hands have touched. Remember that? When we say 1 John? That's the very beginning of 1 John. The, pers- the author is saying, I saw this. You can trust me. I'm not making this stuff up. I saw it. I'm a reliable witness. Okay? Now, the reason that's important is because he's writing this book so that you might have life. If he's actually interested in you having life, he's not going to lie about the things that would give you life. This isn't just some, you know, I hope you root for my football team type of writing. This is about life and death. And so he's saying, you can trust me on this stuff. I'm going to point you to the place where you can find life. Trust me. That's what he's saying. Okay? So for whom is this book written? You. It's written for you. That you may believe. We don't have any idea who the you is. It's just written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This book is written for everyone for whom Christ died. Right? In Romans, Paul says, I'm writing to the church in Rome. What does Paul say, or John say here? John says that you, whoever ends up reading this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life. The you is plural that you may have life in his name. Okay? So this is a book that is written in order to create faith. Which is saying something. So number four, what is the goal of this book? You may believe. Right. To create faith in what? Jesus Christ. I was, I was, what, what were we watching? What was it? Oh, it was the Army-Navy game, right? you got to watch that if you're an American. Right? We were watching the Army-Navy game. Did you guys watch that? Boy, Navy was awful, but they tried really hard, you know. What is that? What is that? That's not even real football. Although I hope their, I hope their coach, I hope their coach becomes K-State's coach. That'd be good. Um, they won, right? They killed, they killed whoever they played, like 35 nothing. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Um, but the Navy guys, before the game, were all talking about, I believe. Right? It was the whole thing is, I believe. I believe. It's like, in what? You believe in what? See, that's the, that's the issue. Is believing has become a very popular thing in our world. And I say this all the time when I teach. But, you know, we, ha- we had the Blues slogan a couple years ago was, we believe. And, and we have Navy guys in football games saying, I believe. And you have people encouraging them saying, you just got to believe. But believe what? See, John doesn't say, I write this as you may believe. We all believe. The question is, in whom or in what are you believing? In what are you putting your faith? In whom are you putting your faith? You know what Luther said? Luther said, we all have gods. Anything that you put your hope in is your God. It's not a question of whether or not you believe in God. The question is, who is the God in whom you believe? And John is saying, I wrote this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, what do you get? Life. See, there are lots of gods. There's lots of lords. That's, by the way, in the Gospel of John, it says that. But none of them can give you life except for the true God. And his name is... Jesus. You can believe in any God you want to, and you will, but none of them can help you. All your false gods will actually give you death, 
But this one, this Jesus, he'll give you life. That's why the Gospel of John was written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God. And that faith will give you life. Yeah? Tom? Is John writing knowing the mechanism for which the book was going to uh, be disseminated? I would say yes. I think he was. I think he was writing this to be disseminated to the church like the other Gospels. Would they like have something comparable to the modern day publisher back then? They would, no, what they would do is they would send it around to be copied by hand and then those copies would be disseminated out from churches. So you would send your, your book to a church and and in that church, a wealthy individual would pay for somebody to make a copy of the book, usually as it's being read out loud. And then you would, you would keep a copy. You might make five copies. Usually the, the evidence we have from, from the first and second century in the Roman Empire is they would usually make five copies of anything that they wanted to be distributed. And those five copies, one you would keep... One, would, one or two would go to the, the exact audience that you're intending and the rest would kind of just go. And then all those would be copied when they got to wherever they went. Okay, so that's, that's the series of copying. And there's evidence in the early church that the, the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were actually collected and bound into a book. And that book was, was carried around and known as the gospels or the gospel. Okay, and remember... This is when the book was actually invented. This time in history, around the, the middle of the second century, a little earlier, is when the book was actually invented. It's called the Codex. Okay? Um, the Codex. And this is when you actually bound pages into a book instead of in a scroll or a bunch of just loose leaf pages that you kind of just pass along. But you actually bound them into a book, sometimes with a cover, sometimes not, usually covered in leather. And it was written on both sides of the paper, so you would turn pages. The Codex was actually invented around the same time that the New Testament was being <coughs> disseminated into the churches. There are more than one scholar who believe that the Codex was actually invented in order to house the New Testament. Because the, the two are actually growing at the same time. Now, there, we don't have any direct evidence for that, but it, I like it. It's, I, I like that theory. Um, but it certainly is happening at the same time. Okay? So, so the, the one way to answer that question is that I think John is aware this is going to be disseminated to the church. He's probably thinking orally with a copy to back it up, but mostly orally, but then handwritten as well. Because he uses the words writing. I mean, he talks about writing. Um, there's a lot of writing going on in the Gospel of John, which is a little unique for the Gospels, too. Jesus even writes in this Gospel, kind of. It's okay. interesting that he, didn't, that he didn't say it's just a book of instructions for you to how to live, because a lot exactly. of people take their Bible and kind of make it that. That's exactly right. See, that's, that's exactly, did you hear what she said? That's exactly right. He didn't say it. These are basic instructions before leaving earth. Right? He didn't say that. No, he said, these are written that you may believe. This is a book that creates and sustains faith. Not just the Gospel of John, the Scriptures. Right? You guys do, do understand this, right? That, that one of the main tenets of Lutheranism is that the Word works. That's an R. The word works, and what it works is faith. And that faith is in Jesus. And that Jesus is all about death and resurrection. See, the word, the point of the word is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Most people think the point of the Bible is to tell us how to live as good people. That's not the point of the Bible. If it was, it's the most... It's the, it's the book that has, has the highest rate of failure of any publication. 
The point of the Holy Scriptures is to give you faith. To engender faith. To create faith. And once you have faith, to sustain your faith. Right? Now, it also will teach you how to live. But that's not its main goal. The main goal is Christ. The whole point of Scripture is Christ. He is the Word of God. Wait, that's from what gospel? John. Okay? So, so this is, that's why I want to start with this verse too, because this is so important, is that the goal of the writing is faith in Christ. Do you guys believe, don't raise your hand, do you believe that when you read the Bible, God is actually at work? Or do you believe that it's just a good book that you ought to pay attention to occasionally? Do you believe that when you open the pages of Holy Scripture, that God will do something? Do you believe that when Corey mispronounces all the Latin names in Luke 3? (laughs) See, occasionally you make the seminarians pass exams. Sometimes they take place in the lectern on Sunday morning. You got through it. Good job. Do you believe that when Corey reads the Old Testament and epistle and gospel to us, that God is at work? What? Do you believe the Word of God actually does something? Do you believe that when you go forward and you kneel at that altar and the pastor says, take and eat, that something's actually happening? Do you believe when that little baby cries and the water hits its head in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that something's actually going on? Or is this all just symbolic of a spiritual reality that we wish was more true than our present reality? We just hope that we can get out of this trashy world and live in some kind of spiritual, idyllic world somewhere. See, these are the questions of faith. Do you believe that God is real and active. Because the author of the Gospel of John believes that God is real and he's active. And when you read these words, that God in his Son, Jesus Christ, will give you life, will forgive your sins, will give to you what Jesus earned in his death and resurrection. He'll give it to you. And the means by which you receive that is what's called faith or believing. Right? It's not benign. It's not powerless. It's not old words of mythical ideas that people came up with. We believe with our very being that this is the word of God. And it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? It will kill you. I should warn you. It's not all it's all gumdrops and, and daisies. It will kill you. Because in Christ, there is no resurrection without death. But in Christ, wherever there's death, there's always going to be a resurrection. So when this word kills you, keep reading because it will give you life. Right? Okay, so what does faith in Jesus give? Life. What kind of life? Eternal life. 
but before I get any qualification that isn't written there, what kind of life does it give you? In His name. You get Jesus' life. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Read it in your heads. It's a long chapter. There you go. Keep going. What's the point? When you go to a, a Lutheran funeral, what's the point? Whose resurrection? Jesus' resurrection. Because here's how it goes for a Christian. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then guess what you get? You get his resurrection. If he's not raised from the dead, guess what you don't get? Resurrection, because there isn't any. See, our whole reality is not based on us. It's based on Christ. And you get what Christ did. You get his life. You don't get life and then Jesus also gives you something to go along with it. No. You get His life so that when you believe in Jesus, you actually, your life is now His life. Your righteousness is not your righteousness. It's His righteousness. The guarantee of heaven is not something in you. It's something in Him. God in you is not you. It's all about Christ. So that what happens is, John is saying, when, when you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, you get life in Him. Not in yourself, in Him. And guess what? His life will never be taken away. He's passed through death and come out on the other side alive. So that means if you ever face death, you know what Jesus says? He who believes in me will never die. Do you know where he said that? He said that outside of the tomb of someone who believed in him. That's so weird. Martha should have said, I don't think you quite understand what's happening here. <laughs> How can you say that outside the tomb of your friend who just died wobbly? It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus goes, hold on a second. I am the resurrection of the life. Right? See, it's not about an event. It's about Jesus as the very in-flesh Yahweh. When you believe in Him, you get everything that He gives. You get peace, hope, salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. That's all. So as we study the Gospel of John, that's what we're going to get. Because these are written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you get life in his name. All right, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, turn our hearts and minds to the Holy Scriptures, that in them we might see Jesus crucified and risen again, and that by believing in him, we might receive life in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you all.